Good morning, everyone. Well, this was supposed to be my January New Year message. Um, life didn't quite work out as planned for us this summer. COVID is a bit like that. But better late than never. Uh, January at Pathway is normally free topic preaching month. And for me, this summer, there was no doubt about what I would be preaching as towards the end of last year, time and time again, I was drawn back to this little book of Jude. And the more I read the book of Jude, the more I am convinced that this is a book that more Christians should really get to know. Small but mighty is how I would describe the book of Jude. Actually, to call it a book is, is overreach, really. It's a letter and a very short letter at that. It is only 25 verses from beginning to end. So it ranks as one of our shortest books in the Bible. And perhaps it is that smallness that makes it so easy to overlook and puts it up there as a contender with some of the minor prophets as the most overlooked and most underrated and underread books in the Bible. But we know that size isn't everything. Author Bill Vaughan puts it like this. He says, the whale is endangered while the ant continues to do just fine. A single ant can carry more than 50 times its own weight. The book of Jude, I think, is a bit like the humble ant. It is small, it is easy to overlook, it is often underestimated, but it packs a punch which is well above its own weight. Commentator William Barclay agrees, stating there have been times in the history of the church especially during the revivals when Jude was possibly the most relevant book in all of the New Testament. And in my own mind, there could hardly be a more relevant little book, practical and reassuring for our time, for the times that we find ourselves in. So I urge you to read it, reread it, and read it again and let its practical wisdom seep in to your very being. It won't take you long. It's only a five or a 10 minute read, but in spite of it only being a five or a 10 minute read, we're not gonna read all of the passage out this morning. Instead, if you have a Bible, an electronic one or a trusty standard hard copy Bible, if you would like to turn to the book of Jude and follow it through as I work through this passage with you. For those with hard copy Bibles, you'll find it right near the end. It's the second last book, just before Revelation. Jude begins the letter by identifying himself. And I think you can tell a lot about a person by how they identify themselves. You know how some people always like to be addressed by their title? Or they like to ensure that there's a bunch of letters put after their name if it's ever written down. Or they give themselves a very pretentious title for their very unpretentious and ordinary job. 
immediately I like Jude because he's not interested in any of that. He identifies him simply as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And James, he doesn't need to to add anything to James's name. James is just James because Jude's audience would have all known very well who James was. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time. And what is remarkable about these two brothers is that neither of them have any interest in playing themselves up and playing their own history up. What neither of them mention is that both of them were raised in the same household as Jesus. They were raised as his brothers. And that, I think, speaks volumes to the character of both of these men. It also speaks to their understanding of just who Jesus was. He wasn't just like an earthly brother. He was on a different level. They grew up in the same household as Jesus. They were raised by the same earthly parents, yet when they had the chance to exploit that fact, they chose not to, instead referring to themselves simply as servants of Jesus Christ. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9.5, refers to them as brothers of Jesus. So we know that that's how people thought of them. That's how they were known, but they themselves refused uh, to use those titles. Growing up, they hadn't even believed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Bible tells us they even thought he was out of his mind. But the resurrection changed all that and brought both of these men to faith. Humble and mindful of his divine identity, of this this one Jesus that they grew up with, both of them introduced themselves merely as servants of Jesus Christ. And both of them did indeed serve as leaders in the early church. James as a key figure in Jerusalem and Jude, together with his other brothers, as you'll read up there, travelling, teaching and spreading the good news along with the apostles. The recipients of this letter, Jude describes beautifully as those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. So he's writing to believers, he's writing to Christians, they are called, they are loved by God the Father and they are kept by Jesus Christ. And how reassuring those words must have been to a church that was facing persecution from the outside and facing false teaching within the church itself. These were people who were paying a high price for their faith. And Jude reminds them in this opening address just how precious they are to God the Father. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance, he says. Mercy, it appears as a New Testament greeting only four times. And always it is in the context of the background of false teaching in their midst. Perhaps it's a reminder that every one of us every day need the mercy of God to maintain a right relationship with God. 
and stand firm against false teaching. Peace is that deep peace of God that comes only from knowing that one is fully accepted by God. And love, God's love for all of humanity placed in the hearts of his people. Mercy, peace and love, essential for the people of God in the face of persecution and in the need to stand firm against false teaching. You'll notice here something that Jude is a fan of threes, mercy, peace and love, called, loved and kept. And we are going to see threes pop up repeatedly as we work our way through and as Jude builds up his argument. But first, his, his reason for writing. And Jude is very straightforward here. I like a, a writer who's straightforward. You don't need to consult any Bible scholars to figure out what it is that Jude wants his readers to know. Dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. So he planned to write with one purpose, but something else has come up and he now feels a need to change his mind and to write to them about something else. And that's something that happens all the time. Pastors do it today. They will interrupt a, a preaching series because some issue is affecting their particular church and it needs to be addressed. And we've seen that a lot in the last year with, with COVID. The reason for his last minute change, he says, is that godless men have slipped in among the believers and they are leading people astray. They are leading a rebellion against God's order. And so Jude addresses this by providing us with three, a triplet of examples to illustrate what happens to rebellious people. Firstly, we have the Israelites whom God led out of slavery in Egypt, uh, parted the Red Sea for them so that they could cross, but when they got to the edge of the promised land, they wouldn't believe that God would take them in there safely and so they refused to go in. The second example he uses is of, is of the angels who were assigned areas of responsibility and authority by God Yet they rebelled against his established order, refused to maintain their assigned positions and instead mingled with human women, according to Genesis 6. The final example is, is very well known, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities well known for their rebellion against God's established moral order. What happened in each of these cases? Well, the Israelites, God turned away from Canaan and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until all who had rebelled had died. They were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah also famously destroyed when God rained down burning sulfur upon those cities. And the rebellious angels, well, they are the devil and his angels and they are bound in darkness, awaiting 
judgment. Jude's message here is very clear. God does not take rebellion lightly. Rebellious people will receive divine justice. Returning to these godless men who had slipped in among the believers, Jude now calls them dreamers. Perhaps they sought to justify their position by saying that it had been revealed to them in dreams and revelations. We don't know. He points out that the immoral actions of these people, their failure to accept the authority that was placed over them, and even their very words, their slander of celestial beings, mark them out as being godless. And he then provides an example in verses 9 and 10, which is very unfamiliar to us because it is not drawn from the Bible. It's drawn from one of many other texts that were inspired by scripture and that were valued by the Jews. The writings of the early church fathers tell us that these verses are drawn from a text called the Assumption of Moses or the, te the Testament of Moses, it's sometimes called. And it apparently gives an account of the death of Moses and of God sending the archangel Michael to bury him. But the devil disputes Michael's right to do so because Moses had been a murderer in his early history. You'll remember that he killed someone. Remember, this is not a biblical account. I'm simply telling it to you so that you can understand why Jude uses it because his audience were familiar with these writings and they knew the lessons that Jude was trying to draw out of them. Jude has included this story because it serves to highlight a distinction between the correct actions of the Archangel Michael and those of the godless men that the church were dealing with. Michael would not take it upon himself even to slander the devil. Instead, he appealed to God for judgment. But by contrast, these godless men who had slipped in among them were not only content to slander celestial beings, but also recognised no authority over them, not in the law and not in the church leaders that God had appointed over them. Then Jude highlights a triplet of individuals in verse 11 who were not only rebellious themselves but who went on to lead many others astray. The first contender here is Cain who of course murdered his brother Abel but then was not content to submit to God's judgment upon him. God determined that he would be a wanderer for the rest of his life but also God's mercy towards him because you might remember God placed a mark of protection upon him. Cain is not content with any of that and instead opts to depart from God's presence and to settle down and to build a city without God. He initiates a godless way of living. And that ultimately contributed to the destruction of many when God saw the wickedness on earth and decided to bring the flood. Our second contender is the Old Testament prophet Balaam. 
and we've talked about him before uh, later last year. You might recall he was unable to curse Israel. God would not allow him to curse Israel himself. So instead, he simply taught them to sin. He led them into idolatry through sexual immorality with foreign women. And because those foreign women worshipped foreign gods, those foreign gods crept in to their society. The result being that these people were led away from God and the Lord's anger was fueled, and a plague swept through, killing many of the Israelites. Our final contender here is Korah, who famously rebelled against God's appointed leadership in Moses and Aaron. And he gathered 250 supporters around him, and the end result of that little rebellion was that 250 men were consumed by fire, and their 250 households were swallowed up by the earth. And then a plague ravaged through the rest of the community, killing 14,700 before Aaron was able to bring it to an end by making atonement for the sins of the rebels. Again, Jude's message is very clear. Tolerating these godless people within the church will have serious consequences. They will lead people away from God, just as Cain and Balaam and Korah did. Then Jude provides us with six metaphors, three groups of three, to describe these people. They are like hidden reefs or sunken rocks at their love feasts. Now, if you've got an NIV, you'll find the word blemishes there, or a King James, you'll find the word spots. But most other um, translations use hidden reefs. Now, the reason for that is that this is a very tricky word for the translators to translate. It's only found in one place in the New Testament here. And when translators are working on a word, they'll often look at the context of how it's used everywhere else to help them decide how to use it. Well, they don't have any um, the benefit of of other places that they can search for this word. In secular Greek, the word meant sunken rocks or reefs. But by the fourth century, it had come to be used to describe blemishes. And we see that all the time in our own language. It changes over time. But remember that Jude was a brother of Jesus. So he's a first century character. So I think hidden reefs or sunken rocks is the correct use here. Jude's intention being that these people are dangerous, like hidden reefs or sunken rocks, and they are capable of bringing down the entire ship. They are like selfish shepherds. Their concern is for themselves, not for the wider church. And this imagery, no doubt, comes from Ezekiel's um, description of the shepherds who feed only themselves. They are like clouds without rain. This one's drawn from Proverbs 25, 14. They promise much, but they bring no relief to a thirsty land. The teaching of these people, supposedly so enlightened, does nothing to nourish the spiritual life. They're like barren, uprooted trees 
twice dead. They're unproductive, that's what he's saying. Dead twice, once in their own sins and transgressions, but also cut off from the life-giving root who is Jesus. They're like wild waves, always churning up shame. Image drawn from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, 20, who described the, the wicked as a restless sea, continually churning up mire and mud. And they are like wandering or shooting stars. They're destined for darkness. So it's a pretty harsh summary of these men. Stay away from them, have nothing to do with them is the obvious intent here. But avoiding a sunken reef is easier said than done. The very reason that they are dangerous is because they're hard to see, they're hard to pick. They don't parade around with a sticker across their forehead saying, false teacher or purveyor of lies. So how are we going to recognise them? Well, James has got another three for us. This was a very easy PowerPoint to prepare because I could just keep duplicating the slides because everything comes in threes here. How do we recognise such people if they happen to come into our midst? Number one, they grumble and fault find. Number two, they follow their own evil desires. Number three, they boast about themselves and they flatter others, not to encourage others or build them up, but only because they think that to do so will be of benefit to themselves. And then in verse 19, a similar set of three characteristics is given as if to emphasise the first. They cause division. Grumbling and fault-finding has a way of doing that. They follow mere natural instincts, natural instincts, evil desires, sort of highlighting the same thing. They do not have the spirit. Such a person is not operating in the spiritual world. They are operating in the natural world. And in Jude's day, ironically, these people claimed that they were the spiritual elite. They had insights that other people didn't have. Jude says not only were they not elite, they didn't even have the spirit. They're operating in a human realm, which is why they have to boast and flatter for their own gain. And this is nothing to be surprised about, says Jude. The ancients warned of such men. And the example given in verses 14 and 15 is of Enoch. Enoch that you will find in Genesis, but the quote that's given here you won't find in Genesis. It's another example of Jude using this extra biblical material to draw on. And in the example you'll find the reference there is from one Enoch. Not only did the ancients warn of such men, says Jude, the apostles did too. Verses 17 and 18. And I've given you three references up there. Uh, for where Peter, John and Paul have all warned the church about such people. So don't be surprised, he says, contend for the faith. So we come to the pointy end. What does it mean to contend for the faith? It sounds like a battle cry, don't you think? It sounds like we're going into battle. If you look up that phrase, contend for the faith, online, 
and you type in images, this is what you'll find. You'll find hundreds of images of boxing gloves or boxing rings. Um, sometimes there's swords and suits of armour. So you could rightfully get the impression that we're about to go into battle here. We're going to take down these false teachers who might sneak in unnoticed like sunken reefs and spread untruth among us and lead others astray and cause division. We're going to knock them out with our clever arguments. We're going to seek and destroy their immoral behaviour. And we'll punish anyone that's going to step out of line or we'll make them sorry that they ever messed with us. Right? Well, not according to Jude. Jude's version of contending for the faith is more like this. This is more what he means when he says to contend for the faith. It's more like working out in the gym than it is about swinging punches. It's about being able to defend oneself and one's church against false teachers. And to do that, to be able to thrive in the context of false teaching, you need to be at the top of your game spiritually. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, says Jude. And that's not going to happen without some effort expended on your part. You don't build a great muscular physique by just owning a gym membership. You have to actually attend the gym. And when you're there, you can't just hang around talking. You have to actually do some work. Build yourselves up, says Jude. Study the scriptures. Put time into the task. Be disciplined like an athlete. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Now, there's a definite article in front of that word faith. So Jude is not talking about our personal faith here. It's not my faith or your faith. It's the faith. It's that unchangeable, objective truth that has been handed down to the believers. Study it. Get to know it, says Jude, so that you can recognise falsehood and save yourself and others from being struck against the reef. Pray in the Holy Spirit. False teaching isn't going to be defeated by our clever arguments. It has to be dealt with in the spiritual realm. And so we must pray in the Spirit, not once or twice. Both build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Spirit. They're present tense. They're things we have to keep on doing all of the time. They're ongoing activities in the life of all believers. Praying in the Spirit doesn't mean praying in tongues. That can be part of it, but that's not what's intended here. It means allowing the Holy Spirit to have control over all of your life so that you can be sure that what you are praying is in the Spirit. And since sin grieves the Holy Spirit, we must be constantly confessing our sin so that the Holy Spirit will have free reign in our lives and we can be sure that our prayers will reflect that. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And what else? 
The third thing that Jude tells us that is part of this contending for the faith is to keep ourselves in God's love. Now, the Bible tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So how then is it possible to be outside of the love of God? And I think Jesus himself gives us the best explanation on this one. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I obey the Father's commands and remain in his love. So keeping ourselves in God's love is about being obedient to his commands. God's love is steadfast, but it's possible for us to put ourselves outside of it by our disobedience. It's a bit like the situation when you have older children in the house and uh, they perhaps don't like the rules or they don't like the way that the household operates. And so if they refuse to abide by the standards and accept the discipline of the parents, they put themselves outside of the love of the parents. It doesn't mean that the parents don't love them. They still do. But the child has made that decision to turn their back and put themselves outside of that love. In their disobedience, these false teachers had not only fallen out of love with God, they turned their back on God's love for them. Keep his commandments that you might stay in his love, says Jude. Contending for the faith, according to Jude, also involves waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? Like we're sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting to die or waiting for Christ to return and our earthly lives to end, whichever comes first. It is not. This one is about perspective and about Christian hope. Those of us who can see the bigger picture and who have their eyes fixed on eternity rather than the details of what's happening in the world, those people are more likely to keep the trials and tribulations of life in a proper perspective. And that is one way to contend for the faith. Finally, in the, the couple of verses that follow, the focus switches away from ourselves and the way that, onto the way that we should treat others. And again, I think the message is very clear here. If you haven't built yourself up in the faith, if you aren't praying in the Holy Spirit, if through your disobedience you've set, stepped outside of God's love, if your perspective is restricted because you've lost sight of the Christian hope of eternity, then you'll be in no fit state to address the apostasy and the false teaching that might come your way. But if you've addressed those things in your own life, then how should you treat others? Jude says your actions should be merciful. Be merciful to those who doubt. These people are flirting with false teaching and their eternal future is at stake. They need someone who's built up in the faith, praying in the spirit, securing God's love and with a proper perspective 
to come alongside them, to encourage them and teach them. And that someone could be you. Others need snatched from the fire. These people have moved beyond doubt and they're no longer just flirting with false teaching. They're on the verge of apostasy and they need someone to rescue them. But an ill-prepared rescuer is in grave danger of needing rescuing themselves. Verse 23, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It is that old adage, love the sinner, hate the sin, but be very, very careful. Maintain a healthy dose of fear, lest you also be sucked into untruth. In the past two years, we've all become very wary of a virus that has sought to invade our bodies. Someone coughs and we all start to wonder, is there disease in our midst? And we've gone to great lengths to protect ourselves. We're wearing masks. We sit apart from one another now. Remember, we used to all sit almost touching each other shoulder to shoulder. We sanitise and disinfect the building. And now with the advent of, of these little devices that we call rats, we have the ability to make a diagnosis as soon as we have even the slightest concern. There is no rapid antigen test to detect spiritual illness among us. In fact, Jude has made it very clear that it can be very hard to detect, like a sunken reef or a hidden rock, waiting to capsize the whole boat. What Jude has given us here in this little letter, only 25 verses long, is like a comprehensive medical diagnostic and treatment manual. But a diagnostic medical and treatment manual is of no benefit if nobody reads it, if it just sits on the shelf. It has to be studied. The symptoms have to be carefully evaluated against what is described in the book. And if necessary, the recommended treatments have to be applied. So I urge you today to read and reread this little letter from Jude. It won't take you long. And evaluate the symptoms we observe in our lives of late against what is described here. Morally, is there anything of concern in our actions or speech? Am I willing to accept the authority of those whom God has placed over me? Is there any grumbling or fault finding in me? Have I been the cause of division? What fruits of the Spirit are evident in my life demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is in control of my life? Are my actions mostly based on natural instincts or divine ones? Have I felt the need to boast or to flatter others for my own gain? How is my faith compared to this time last year? Have I been actively studying the scriptures on a regular basis to build up my faith? What about prayer? What does my prayer life look like compared to this time last year? How am I actively keeping his commandments? 
Does the way I live mostly reflect an earthly perspective or an eternal one? Does mercy dominate my dealings with others who are weaker in the faith? The Greek word translated contend is epagonismai. Probably haven't said it right. Bill could probably tell you how to say it perfectly. But you can see in that word which English word we get from it. We get the English word agony. It has an element of struggle and hard work about it. Are you prepared to do that for the spiritual health of yourself? and those others who are sitting around you here this morning. We've learned over these last two years what it means to struggle and to do what it takes to protect the physical health of our own families and our community here at Pathway. We should be as concerned, if not more concerned, and willing to apply ourselves diligently to guard our own spiritual health and that of the community here at Pathway. Physical health is important, but spiritual health is eternal. I urge you, says Jude, to contend for the faith. Will you commit to doing that this year? Let's pray. Father God, the faith that has been entrusted to us is precious, just as our own physical health is precious. Help us to actively contend for that faith. Lord, there'll be some of us in this room whose hearts, hearts have hardened of late. And to these you have been speaking by your spirit this morning. There will be some of us whose prayer life is not what it should be. Some of us whose Bibles lie unopened day after day. Some of us who are secretly struggling in some area of our lives and some whose focus has been far too much on earthly things of late. In the quietness, hear our confessions, Lord. We commit ourselves to doing better in those areas you've brought to our mind. Help us to take seriously this call to contend for the faith. Amen.